Well, good morning. If you look up the hashtag living authentically or hashtag authentic life on social media, you will discover a world of people who are striving to live their best life. Once we used to value the moral life, the upright person, but now the goal is to discover who you really are and live out your true purpose and meaning from that place. And if you scroll through those posts, you'll realise that hashtag living authentically looks like a whole lot of different things, from finding a fulfilling career or a soulmate, from understanding your gender, sexual or cultural identity, to mastering a particular kind of spirituality or implementing a sustainable life or making a sea change, a tree change, a mind shift, a body transformation. The common desire is for our lives to make sense and to really count for something. And maybe this resonates with you. I admit it does for me. And if authenticity is the goal, then the worst way to live is to be a phony or a hypocrite, isn't it? Like my friend, who was a passionate advocate for vegetarianism, but then I discovered they actually really liked and frequently ate meat. Don't be like that guy, right? He's a hypocrite. Now, I think that what God is calling on Israel to do in Micah 6 is to live the authentic life. And if we are followers of Jesus here today, then the call is for us as well to understand who we really are as God's people and to live our lives in a way that matches up with that. And verse 8 summarises this beautifully. To live the authentic life is to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The story we've heard from Micah over the past few weeks is unfortunately about Israel's miserable failure to do this. I'm going to give you a quick recap. In chapters 1 and 2, God said he is coming in judgment against Israel because they were fakers. They'd set up a false temple in Samaria. They were worshipping false gods, the idols of surrounding nations. There was prostitution at the temple and they were making money off the prostitutes. Their worship was totally inauthentic. In chapter 3, we discovered that it's the leaders who are the worst of all. They're total hypocrites. It says they hate good and they love evil. They knowingly led God's people astray to make life easier for themselves. They didn't speak the truth. They just said what everyone wanted to hear and took their money. Their leadership was twisted and exploitative. And then in chapters 4 and 5, Micah declared that God would not let the house of Israel stand any longer as it was. The leaders would have their power taken from them and all of Israel would be taken over by other nations and exiled. And at the time, it seemed unimaginable that this would happen. But what we know from history that is that this unpopular prophecy of Micah and others like him did come to pass. Well, how did it come to this? It happened because Israel had forgotten who they were and what their lives were meant to be about. That narrative that the false teachers had been telling Israel for years and years was that they were doing just fine. Worshipping the idols of the surrounding nations was a good way to shore up their bets. It was a kind of protection and that becoming wealthier was a sign that God was blessing them. But this was totally false. And now here in chapter 6, 
God declares his case against them, not by rehashing their sins again, but by reminding them of who he is and what their relationship with him was all about. And this way of understanding your identity is a bit like people who are really into their genealogies or have their DNA tested or that show on SBS, Who Do You Think You Are? Last week I watched an episode of that and it was uh, Celia Pacola, the comedian and performer, who discovered that she had a great-grandfather three times removed who had been a town clerk in Sydney, which was kind of ironic because she'd really um, been in that satirical program Utopia, right, if you know that and um, really made fun of that kind of role. And she was kind of stressed out that this is what she was finding out, but then she discovered that he was quite a cheeky man who doodled in the minutes and was actually an artist who drew some of the earliest pictures of Sydney and she felt like her life was making sense. Well, this is kind of what God is doing here. He's telling them what their history is so that Israel understand again who they're meant to be. And it's a story that goes way back Verse 1, listen to what the Lord says, says Micah. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Hear, let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. It's the ancient earth, the hills that the ancestors of Israel walked upon that he appeals to. They are a witness to what he says. And then he says in verse 3, what have I done? I think this is a vulnerable moment of God before us. What have I done, he says. How have I burdened you? It's like when a loving parent despairs of a rebellious child. What have I done that you turned out like this? <laughs> that you would turn so radically against what I taught you, he says. Israel's behaviour is making no sense because God has been very good to them. In verse 4, he reminds them, remember how I rescued you out of slavery and from injustice? We know this story from the book of Exodus. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt after the time of Joseph. They were oppressed and crying out and God intervened and miraculously freed them. They had experienced his justice. See how he also set up good leadership for them in Moses, Aaron and Miriam, he reminds them. You know, in the book of Numbers, there's this beautiful verse and it says this about Moses. Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. These were the kind of leaders that God had wanted for his people. And then in verse 5, we see that God led Israel through enemy territory into the promised land, through the wilderness for 40 years. He didn't leave them alone. He walked beside them. He intervened so that the prophet Balaam wouldn't speak against them and he didn't let the king of Moab capture them. God is saying, if you remember me and what I've done for you, then you will know who you are. You are my rescued, liberated, beloved people and I've walked alongside you through all kinds of difficulty and danger. I established you in your land as free people and we have a covenant relationship with one another. Well, next in verse 6, after what I think is like a mic drop moment, God brings this case and then 
silence, you hear the response from Micah of Israel. And if you've ever had a huge problem, have you ever had a huge problem to solve and you've tried to throw everything at it, or you've wronged someone and you really want to make it up to them, this is what we hear from Israel. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That is, should I give him the best thing that I have? Will this fix it? Or will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? This is crazy language, right? I think that the ragged harvest this year made 315 litres of oil, I read which is a lot of oil, but it's not 10,000 rivers of oil. This is, what if I gave God everything? If I gave him the whole world, will this fix what's happened? And finally, what if I offered God my firstborn for my transgression, for my transgression the fruit of my body for the, my, the sins of my soul? My firstborn is sitting over here, and it's still unthinkable that I would offer my firstborn to God for my sins. That is a crazy, unimaginable thing to do. Would it fix it? No. No. There's no grand gesture or act that Israel can do to fix this. And in fact, this over-the-top language of what can I offer, what sacrifice can I make, is half the problem for them. They think that their religiosity is going to make things right. Finally, God says, this is what I want from you, verse 8. Micah says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. In other words, do what God has done for you. Live out your identity as God's people. Now, we are not the Israelites. If you go back in my family tree, you will not find Moses and Aaron and Miriam, but... We do have the same God, and we have a similar story. Not our rescue out of slavery in Egypt, but the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection for us. When we remember that story, we are remembering that God liberated us from the power of sin and death, that we have been released from a kind of spiritual slavery that separated us from knowing God and his goodness. In John's Gospel, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his own day who thought they were doing just fine, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it to get forever. So if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. That outrageous offer that we saw in verse 7, Shall I offer my firstborn? for the sin of my soul, would have reminded the Israelites of that story in Genesis where God said to Abraham, if you know this story, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, make him a sacrifice. He was testing Abraham to see how much he trusted and loved him. In the end, God didn't. He intervened and he gave him um, an animal to sacrifice. It was not expected that he would do it. But as we read this verse, we are to remember that even though we cannot pay the price or bridge the gap between us and God made by our sin, he does it himself. The Son of God is given as a sacrifice for us. 
And when he does it, God's justice is satisfied. And at the same time, he is pouring out his extraordinary mercy and love to us all. And so this is what defines who we are. In uh, the first letter of Peter, he says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What I'm asking us, myself, today is, is this how we understand our identity? Is this what's shaping our lives and informing our decisions? At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about that trend of looking inwards to make sense of who we are. I'm not saying that's not important. The diversity of people, our personalities, our various experience and gifts enrich our community. And I say, bring your whole self to church. But what I'm also saying is that this one unifying story of who we are as God's forgiven people is the foundation of our identity. This is the primary place for discovering our purpose and meaning. And if we do this, we'll be people who will keep looking back at the cross and humbling ourselves and then looking outside of ourselves to see how we can bless others as God has blessed us by acting justly and mercifully in the world. I think Micah 6.8 is a great picture of what uh, our life as a church should look like. To be a community that acts justly, that cares for the vulnerable and the oppressed here among us, in our community and globally. To love mercy, to be so moved by God's kindness and love towards us that we welcome others in and share Jesus with them. And to be people who maintain a humble posture, walking alongside God, seeking him every day in prayer and repentance and thanksgiving. One of the things I've loved about Mary Creek and Lincoln from the start, one of the reasons I wanted to come here, is because we are actually a church that believes all those three things matter and that they work best when they are interwoven. See, if you just have justice you just care about justice, then what that can lead to is a kind of pride and impatience, even a judgment of others. But if you have mercy without justice, then we can become a ghetto and just love what God has given us already. We become apathetic about the world and forget that God, how much God loves it and wants us to be a blessing. And if we walk humbly without justice and mercy, is that possible? I wondered about this. I think perhaps it is. And if we uh, fail to act or reach out to others, we will end up being people who live in fear. But I actually think we are juggling the three balls pretty well. But we can always continue to grow and encourage each other in this. I don't know if you're like me, though, and perhaps sometimes when you look at what's going on in the world, you feel overwhelmed by the gap there is. There is so much injustice. There is so little mercy, even in the church. The vision is beautiful, but the reality is very mixed. 
And in the past week, I've read two reports about the issue of domestic violence in the Anglican Church, and I thought, I can't really preach this sermon without talking about this. And we must talk about it. This is an extraordinary matter of injustice, mostly against women. Not always, but mostly. The National Anglican Family Violence Project released findings that domestic abuse is happening at at least the same or even higher rate in the Anglican Church of Australia. This is really depressing news. The other report was from Melbourne University uh, about the Melbourne Diocese Prevention of Violence Against Women program that Robin Andrea Busi has been developing. And this was a really positive review assessing the effectiveness of the program so far and giving recommendations for how to continue improving it. And I wanted to mention this report to you as well because I want you to give you hope that action is being taken and we are moving in the right direction. But still, when we hear about this, we need, a, I think, a MICA-level reality check. It's a moment of repentance for us because even one such case of family abuse in the people of God is too many. And I want you to know that we take it very seriously here at Mary Creek. As we apply this teaching from Micah today, we must end up saying that if we know we are people who have been liberated from the power of sin by God, who loves us tenderly and graciously, then it does not add up that we would treat anyone, especially the ones who are closest to us, with harshness and abuse. Our whole identity centres around the justice and mercy of God. And so we must repent of any wrongdoing on our part and seek to do right by those we may have wronged and look after those who are suffering this kind of injustice in our church. And in this particular moment, because this issue is on the table, I want to say to you again, we've heard this before, but we need to keep saying it. If you are experiencing any kind of abuse in your relationship, then please know that you can share this with me or Peter, and we will listen to you. We will believe and grieve with you, and we will help you find the right avenues of professional support. We don't want anyone to go on living in abusive circumstances. We would like to support you. And also, if you are someone who struggles to control your anger and to be loving and gentle with your partner and children, please be honest with yourself about it and with God. You need to change and you need help to do that. And Peter and I are also willing to listen and support you to find appropriate help and accountability. We will not shame you because we too are people who have experienced God's mercy to us in so many ways. We want to encourage you and support you to walk that humble walk with God again. Living the authentic Christian life is not easy to do. It sounds so amazing, but it's not easy. Maybe when you hear the accusations in the book of Micah and feel afraid, you feel afraid because you know that you're not good enough. Or maybe you feel impatient with the church or individuals for moving slower than you'd like them to. Maybe you're afraid of what it might cost you to wholeheartedly live out that vision of Micah 6.8. Or maybe you're just tired. You have compassion fatigue or you're discouraged. 
Maybe you read the news, you feel overwhelmed by how messy it is, and you wonder, where would we start? And I say, but of course, this is how it will always be until Jesus returns. The gaps are wide and we will still keenly feel them one way or another. But let's not give up. Let's keep remembering that our story starts and finishes with God's work for us. Remember Jesus, the most authentic person to ever walk the earth, who lived Micah 6.8 out to perfection. He was truly human. He was limited. He sought solace and time with his heavenly father so he could continue on. He spoke up for the oppressed. He healed the sick. He ate with sinners. He was patient and forbearing with his annoying friends. He paced himself. He stretched himself. He understood and fulfilled his mission to set people free and love them wholeheartedly. And the more we draw near to him in humility and thankfulness, the more we will find ourselves braver and willing to continue. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into the world and for all that you've done for us. We long for the time when you come to make all things right, where you will wipe the tears away from our eyes, where we will know you face to face. But now would you help us, would you encourage us to continue on, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you and together as your people. Help us to know what it really is, the freedom to be your people in this world and in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.